Amen. One day that blind lady, Fanny Crosby, wrote that song. It's going to see him face to face. And we shall see him too, face to face. If you would turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. Anybody did not get a, some notes for tonight? I thought I gave your son two. Maybe I did not. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Turn to John chapter 17. This is kind of a uh, follow-up from last week. And last week we talked about uh, the origin of authority as Baptists, and or the origin of Baptists, and it goes all the way back to John the Baptist. We have the same doctrine that John the Baptist taught. Uh, John the Baptist baptized the disciples, many of the disciples who became disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Jesus accepted the authority of John's baptism, and, and they then in turn baptized others. And the Bible tells us that Jesus did not baptize, but his disciples did. And, uh, and so, uh, and of course, uh, Jesus then established for us the first church, and gave us our doctrine. Tonight I want to look at, uh, in the time we have, identifiers of Baptist beliefs historically. Uh, and when we say historically, it's, you know, really they believe this since the time of Christ. It's what we believe to be Bible doctrine. They, as I said last week, Baptists were never creedal people. In other words, they didn't have creeds that they wrote down and followed. They just... Their authority was the Bible. They didn't follow men's creeds. And I'm going to compare that with identifiers of fundamentalist beliefs. Now, fundamentalism, you have to understand, fundamentalism is a movement, or was a movement, of men. And really, it was a reaction. Fundamentalists will tell you this. It was a reaction to liberalism in schools. Liberalism coming into the churches and through the schools, the seminaries, the colleges. And so... There was a reaction to that and a withdrawal, a, a, you know, an uprising against it uh, to try and eradicate liberalism from the schools. They were never successful. What they had to do was leave the schools. Some of them stayed in until they died, <laughs> you know, argued and, and fought it till the day they died, but never left it. Um, and, and so it was a movement of men, and fundamentalism... Uh, um, uh, how do I say this? It, it's centered around five major doctrines. The inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ. Um, trying to remember what some of the other ones are. Uh, salvation through grace alone. And I can't remember what the fifth one is. But five ma- basic, very basic doctrines, Bible doctrines. One of them is not the mode of baptism. So what you had in this fundamentalist movement, you had Protestants and then some Baptists joined it. So you had a mixture. And these Protestants brought with them their infant baptism or their baptism by pouring. Uh, Carl McIntyre was a good example of that. He was Presbyterian and he fought against the liberalism in Princeton and in those universities and then started his own school and had a radio ministry and, and a sort of almost like a Jerry Falwell-type ministry for a while. He fought communism in the United States and all this kind of... He was very popular, but he was, he was Presbyterian. He was not a Baptist. But he was a fundamentalist. He's considered a fundamentalist because he adhered to the five fundamentalists. Basically, a Catholic could adhere to those five fundamentalists. Um, so out of that, what you have is Baptists then joining ranks with Protestants and becoming, I don't know if this is a word, Protestantized. <laughs> uh, they adopted, they began to adopt more, more um, uh, of Protestant doctrines. And really that's what fundamentalism is. It's a mixture of Protestants and Baptists. Uh, but it is a dying 
movement. It is a movement, again, it's a movement of men. It's not of God. It's a movement of men. You know, they never should have been part of these schools in the first place because that's not a Baptist distinctive. That is something historically distinctive of Baptists. And so as we look at these identifiers tonight, not all fundamentalists hold to all these fundamentalists. What do I have here listed as fundamentalist lead? These are some general things, but, but some of them do some of them to greater extent than others. You know, it's, there, there, there's a variation there. But, and I'll explain that as I go along. But I want to start in John chapter 17. And verse 1, These works spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that they should, he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth, and I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And here's the key word. They have received them. Received them. That's where we get the name for the Greek text that we hold to as authentic for the, uh, that we translate, the translators translated the King James Bible from, and they call it the received text, or the textus receptus, which means received text. And that's, that's really the, where this comes from. They have received them. In other words, the words. Now, again, these are important. Words, not word, words. Uh, we're talking about words. And we'll see why this is important later. But So they have received them, have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. And so these are, you might say, this is kind of a comprehensive thought here, that Bible-believing Baptist people, they, again, they weren't called Baptists at the beginning. Uh, they were called a lot of, by a lot of different names, but they all held the same doctrines throughout history, and then they became called Anabaptists and later Baptists. But they held these same doctrines, and they held to the things that the Lord taught uh, in the Scriptures. The Bible was their sole authority, the sole authority. And so as we go through this tonight, you know, we're building upon the base of what John the Baptist taught, and he was a man sent from God, and, and then... Uh, and then what Jesus taught his disciples. So let's pray, and then we'll look at these, these different things here. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your love and your mercies to us. We thank you for the truth of thy word. Father, I pray as we look into the word of God tonight and see differentiate some things here that we see between uh, independent Baptists, uh, historical Baptists, and the fundamentalist movement of, of the, this past century. I pray that you help us to understand our need to hold these truths and why uh, we accept them as truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first one is, you know, uh, Baptists down through history or by whatever name they were called, the Waldensians, the Albigenses, they believed that salvation was for whosoever will. Whosoever will. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, where the Bible says, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And when the Bible says the whole world, it means the whole world. I mean, it's talking about the people, all the people of this age, uh, of this time. And, and so, uh, and, you know, Romans ten thirteen, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't know how you can get around that. Um. You know, will all men be saved? Of course, the answer is no. Not all men will be saved because some men choose to be lost. 
In fact, the Bible tells us that many will be lost. You know, John 1 tells us, He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. You know, Matthew 7 and verses 13 and 14 tells us, Enter ye into the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And so we know not all men will be saved, that the majority will be lost, because they choose to be lost. You know, John 3 tells us men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. And they will not come to the light, lest their deeds be reproved. And so we know from the Bible that, that salvation was intended, you know, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I'm in the fundamentalist camp, not all, but it's growing. This is growing. The belief that salvation is for the elect. You know, it's growing in fundamentalist circles, it's growing in Southern Baptist circles, it's taught right over here at the seminary. And, of course, they base that upon pulling a few verses out of context, which, which is what, how you build false doctrine. For example, in John chapter 15 and verse 16, and I had a guy who used to come here to church, and he, he called himself a, um, a, a, was it Calvinist Baptist or Baptist Calvinist? That's what he called himself. You know, he used to come here to church in wheelchair. And, uh, and then he found out there was a Calvinist Baptist church here close, and so he went there. News. Anyway, um, and so I was over at his house one day, and he, he uh, read me this verse and said, See, you know, we're chosen. I said, How about looking at the context? John fifteen sixteen says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. That your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, who's Jesus talking to? Is he talking to saved people or lost people? He's talking to saved people. Now, as we'll get on down through these thoughts here further, if you're a fundamentalist, you might think these are lost. After all, if the church doesn't start to Pentecost, they may have not gotten saved to Pentecost. So therefore, you can easily justify that these are now the disciples whom John baptized, who they say, and, and some even say that those same disciples will get baptized on the day of Pentecost. Now, I'm not sure who was there to authorize that on the day of Pentecost, but you know, it's, it's also confusing. But, but he was saying, you know, there, there it says that God has chosen us to salvation. I said, read the verse. He says, he's chosen us to bring forth fruit. doesn't say anything about salvation. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. And it gives another verse 2 in particular I like. But 1 Peter 1 and verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is a stranger scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect, that word elect means chosen, but notice what it says, according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, we are chosen. We that are saved were chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4 tells us, that we should be holy. But Peter tells us we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God knows beforehand what shall come to pass. Therefore, he knew before you got saved, that you would get saved. And if you're here in rebellion tonight, he also knew that. But you can change it. It's up to you to change it. He isn't forcing you to do it. But he knows what your heart, what's in your heart. And so, you know, you know, God, remember, God never says, oops, I didn't think of that. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. So you never surprise him. So he knew before the foundation of the world that you would get saved. Therefore, he knew that you should be holy and without blame before him in love. Before the foundation of the world. I know that's kind of mind-boggling for us to think about, but that's the truth. We're elect according to the full knowledge of God. We're not elect to salvation. We're not chosen to be saved. Some chosen to be saved and others chosen to be lost. 
The second thing we see here, and this has been Baptist belief throughout history, they believe in one baptism. That is water baptism by immersion. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5. Ephesians 4 and verse 5. And this is where one is baptized into a local church. Ephesians 4 and verse 5 says, let's read verse 4 also, there is one body and one spirit, even as you called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One baptism. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 talks about baptism. There also we were baptized into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13 says, For as by one spirit, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we Jews or Gentiles, whether we bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Now, so by one spirit, or by the leading of the spirit, of the one spirit, there's only one Holy Spirit, and by the leading of that Holy Spirit, we are directed to be baptized into a body of Christ. And it is a church. And of course, this chapter defines what the body of Christ is. If you drop down to verse 27, it says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now, fundamentalists believe in two baptisms. Water and spirit baptism. Where one is baptized by the spirit into the, quote, body of Christ, quote, unquote, or what they call the universal, invisible church and and this for this they go they like to quote first corinthians 12 13 by itself without verse 27 and but they like to also look at uh give uh accounts where this happened and let's let's go there and look at this a little bit acts chapter 1 verse 5 jesus tells his disciples in verse 4 Acts 1, 4, And being assembled together with them, commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, when John said that they'd be baptized with the Holy Ghost, he said that Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost doesn't baptize. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Ghost. So this isn't the baptism of the Spirit. This, is, this, is, this baptism uh, was a sign gift given to the early church, churches, to the, to the Jews, to confirm the Word of God uh, to those early churches. And, and it only happened four times in history. Four times. All of them are given to us in the Bible. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled. It doesn't use the word baptism here. It says the word filled. It means the same thing. They were filled, or completely immersed, you might say. And that's what baptism means. It means to immerse, completely cover. So they were completely covered in, if you will, or filled with, the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them others. So they were completely controlled by or empowered by the Holy Ghost. What did Jesus tell His disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? You would receive what? Power. In other words, you're going to be empowered. You're going to be empowered. You know, look at, look at let's go on. Chapter 8, verse 17. I'm going to look at each of these accounts. Chapter 8, verse 17. Philip is in Samaria. And so this is the first, this is the first, you know, Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost Sunday, all the Jews from all over the world. Jews seek a sign. The Bible says Jews seek a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. And so God's given to Jews some signs. And he gives them four times. And that is the filling or the empowering the Holy Ghost. It's visible. It's a visible act. Four times. And, and so, uh, you know, at, at, Pente- at Pentecost Sunday, there's all these Jews from all over the world, and they get a sign. That sign is saying to them, just like, can you remember in the Old Testament, when, when, when uh, uh, 
Uh, Moses erected the temple, and they pulled out the staves, and the Shekinah glory filled that place. That was a sign. This is where you worship God. When, when uh, Solomon built the temple, and again, they set everything up and set everything in order, and, and, they, and they, they moved out of the holy place, again, the Shekinah glory cloud filled that place. That's the presence of God. It's, a, it's saying the presence of God is here. This is where you are to worship God. Not in high places, but here. This is where you meet with God. And you come to the New Testament and you have the, the church being empowered and this is, they're saying this is where you meet with God. It's a sign to the Jews because the Jews seek a sign. Again, in Acts chapter 8, you have Samaritans. And Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So what do they need to confirm that this is of God? They need a sign. And verse 17 says, then laid they their hands on him, this is Peter and John, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw, so he saw something, through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. So again, there was a visible manifestation of the Spirit of God filling or empowering these people. Chapter 10, verse 44. Peter is now going to Cornelius, a Gentile. And I write Gentile. There are Jews traveling with him. Again, Jews don't have any dealings or consider the Gentiles unclean. So this is, this is really something that was, was difficult for Jews to do and would be hard for Jews to accept or believe. However, verse 44 says, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. So here's a visible sign, you Jews, look, this is of God. Gentiles are now receiving Christ and being born again into the family of God. And then chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Chapter, and this is the last time you'll see it anywhere in the Bible. Chapter 19, verse 1 through 7. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard, whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto them what, what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John barely baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people, Notice, that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now, it's most likely that these disciples, they say they were disciples of John, most likely they did not get their message from John directly, but from somebody who got it from John, probably indirectly. And they had not received the complete message of John, because John just didn't baptize just to repentance. John says, you need to believe on him who has come after me. That is Jesus Christ. You need to believe on him and then you need to be baptized for the mission of your sins. But they had never heard of Christ. They had never heard of him. So when they heard this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not in the name of the Holy Ghost. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied and all the men were about twelve. So again... You see, these, are, these were outward visible signs. It was the empowering of the disciples for the work of the ministry. You know, you can ask yourself this question, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, in Ephesians 5, verse 18, the Bible tells us what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18 says, And be drunk with wine when it's excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 is a parallel passage, gives us a little more information, and where it says in verses 16 and 17, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So you might be able to sum up what it means to be filled with the Spirit by simply saying, 
having the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Walking in obedience. Obeying his commands. Being, being filled with the Spirit means a person is filled with the Scriptures and living them out, applying them to life. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit in the New Testament is a sign gift and only happened four times. You don't read about it anymore after Acts chapter 19. You never read of it again. The Bible talks about being indwelled with the Spirit, being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know, we are born again by the, by the Spirit of God through, uh, through the Holy Ghost by regeneration, by the Holy Ghost. You know, He is the agent of our new birth, and He indwells us at the time of our new birth. But that doesn't put us into a body of Christ. That puts us into the family of God. That saves us. It's baptism by water that puts us into a church, a body of Christ. So there's only one baptism. Fundamentalists believe in two baptisms. Water and spirit baptism. Third thing, difference between identifiers of a of historical Baptist is a belief in visible local church only, or local only church. Again, and I could spend most of the rest of the evening here talking about this, but let's look at a few scriptures. Acts 2.47 says, Praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. What church? Well, the church at Jerusalem, where Peter was the pastor. Acts chapter 11, verse 22 to 26. Acts chapter 11, verse 22 to 26. It says, then tidings of these things came unto the church, which was in Jerusalem. So it identifies a church. And it calls it a church. And they, they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. The disciples are called Christians first in Antioch. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, you have the church. It talks about those in the church at Antioch. Uh, chapter 14, verse 23, again, Paul's... Uh, ordaining elders in every church. Every church. Um, so it speaks of more than one church. In Romans chapter 16, verse 5, he talks about the church that is in the house of um, Ananias, not Ananias, Spire, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. I'm sorry. Aquila and Priscilla, the, the church in thine house. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Notice what it says. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. And then if you go to verse chapter 12 and verse 27, that same book, that the church is, he calls the church the body of Christ. Ye are the bodies of Christ and members in particular. So ye are a body of Christ, and each one of you is a member in particular of that body. Just like your foot is a member of your body. That's what Baptists historically have believed in a local only church philosophy. However, fundamentalists believe in a universal, invisible, mystical church or a two tier church philosophy. That is, they believe in the local church and they believe in the same time in this universal, invisible, mystical something. That is, and they, they say it's everybody that's been saved since the day of Pentecost. Until, and, and that will be saved to the rapture. They call that the church. And they use verse like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, which we read a little while ago, where it talks about by one spirit are we baptized into one body. And they say that the church. They call that, and again, they, they use the word church and the body of Christ the same, and we do too, but we believe it, you know, body is something that is visible. You know, this doesn't even, this isn't, doesn't even meet 
proper English definitions of words or Greek definitions of words. I remember when we moved down here, Kevin Jones has, I think he still has, quite an extensive library in the uh, fellowship building over at Calvary. And I got to looking through it, and there was a book there on, about church planting. Um, and I looked at it a little bit, and I saw some of the authors, and some of the authors were big fundamental Baptist fellowship guys. And I thought, well, this will be interesting reading since we're starting a church. So I asked Pastor Webb if I could borrow this book, and he said, sure. So I'm reading this book, and James Singleton, he was a pastor, a big, big wheel, fundamental Baptist fellowship pastor in Arizona years ago. He's probably probably with the Lord now, but anyway, he wrote a chapter on, on it in, it, in that book, and he said that, you know, the church is a body, he said, which is kind of a misnomer, because really, a body is that which makes life visible, and I'm thinking, duh, yeah, hello, but he said, it, he thought, it, you know, he was trying to, to give this idea that the body of Christ is this invisible, universal thing that you really can't see. But that defies all the terminology the Bible uses. It uses a body, a building, and a bride. Which of those can't you see to describe a church or the body of Christ? And this, this universal idea comes from Catholicism. Do you know what Catholic means? Universal. That's what Catholic means. Look it up. Luther coined the term invisible. That's who turned, coined that term. And so they have this, they hold to this two-tier church philosophy which minimizes church authority. After all, why do you need a local church if you're in the invisible one? The local church really isn't that important. And as we're going to see, they minimize the authority of the local church and it also minimizes responsibility to the local church. So this this one this really changes a lot of things here. Uh, but we'll we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Anyway, number four, Baptists believe always believe that Jesus began or built first church. Now there may be some disagreement exactly when he started to build it. You know, some believe Matthew sixteen. I think before that. He started building his church. I mean, he started gathering disciples in, in uh, John chapter 1. Matthew chapter 4, he started gathering disciples. Um, and, and so, you know, if Jesus began the first church, we get our church doctrine uh, from the teachings of Jesus. Members were prepared under the God-sent authorized man, John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3 tells us that. John chapter 1 verse 6 says he was a man sent from God. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus begins to gather disciples and who become members of his church, uh, who he does not rebaptize. They were baptized by John, and he received John's baptism. Matthew 5 through 7, you have the what's called the Beatitudes. And you know, one pastor I heard one time said, rightly said, this is basically discipleship class 101 with Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Ye hath heard, it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy name. But I say unto thee, and that's what it goes, just goes all through. The meek shall inherit the earth, and all those kind of things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on. You know, all those beatitudes are good church doctrine. But if you believe in a Pentecost Sunday beginning... That's all considered Old Testament. That's all considered for the kingdom age. It's not considered for the church. Of course, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, he, I'm the one that will build churches. I will build my churches. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 19, he talks about instruction concerning church discipline. Matthew 26, he institutes the Lord's Supper, and the first Lord's Supper is hell. And in John 21, a pastor is appointed in his place, Peter. All of that before Pentecost. All of it before Pentecost. 
But see, fundamentalists believe, and this is, of course comes from Reformed theology as well, or Protestants, a Pentecost church beginning, that the church began at Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter 14. No, no, that's supposed to be Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Um, verse 4. <clears throat> Acts 4 and verse 1 says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall baptize the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And then verse 5, or verse 8, I'm sorry. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, what are they to receive? Are they to receive salvation? Are they to receive the Holy Spirit? Or are they to this? I mean, if they have not the Spirit, what does the Bible say if you don't have the Spirit? You're not of His. In fact, John tells us in John chapter 20 that he breathed on them the Spirit. No. Uh, were they going to be baptized into the body of Christ? You know, were they going to come, all of a sudden become members of his body, his church? Well, they already had the Lord's Supper. They already had a business meeting. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, uh, prior, to, prior to Pentecost, they had a business meeting, chapter 1, verses uh, uh, 14 through, down through the end of the chapter. They have a first business meeting, and they vote somebody in on the pastoral staff. That sounds like a church to me. No, see, to Baptists, Pentecost sun, Sunday was simply an empowering of the disciples of the church for the work of the ministry that the Lord had called them. That's all it was. It was empowering with the Spirit. It was not making them a church or the beginning of the church or churches. You know, they had already, Jesus said he had already built his church. And again, if you hold to a Pentecost church beginning, then you don't receive Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as authoritative doctrine concerning the church. You receive the epistles of Paul and the book of Acts, which is transitional. And this is what a lot of fundamentalists do. This is what they hold to. In fact, go to Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> <clears throat> Matthew 22. Some actually it's Matthew 21. And this is Schofield in his notes. If, if you have a Schofield Bible, if you don't, I don't recommend you get one. But Schofield in his notes captions this chapter as the king's public offer of himself as king. So this is when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey and they cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, the highest, and all this, and, 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 and so on. And, and, and the Pharisees are upset. The religious leaders are upset at this and offended. And, and so what the fundamentalists say is Jesus offered the Jews the kingdom of God at that point. But because they rejected and refused him, now he's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. No. My Bible says he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was offering them salvation. Entrance, by the way, salvation gives you entrance into the kingdom of God. You understand, if you're saved tonight, you're in the kingdom of God. You've been translated out of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1 tells us. But see, Reformed theology doesn't think that way. They see the kingdom and the church as the same thing. Therefore, the kingdom, or they see it, 
So they see it as, as something, they see it as the same thing, yet, yet you know, you can't, be, you can't be part of the kingdom if you reject Christ. If you, so they, they say that, that he offered them the kingdom, that is the earthly kingdom. They see, that, they see the, the kingdom of God as only earthly, not spiritual. Let me back up. They see the church and the kingdom in different ways. They see it as earthly. In other words, they, what, Jesus, that what they believe Jesus was offering was to set up the millennial reign of Christ right then and there. Jesus wasn't offering that. He was offering himself as their savior from sin. And which, which also enables them to have entrance into the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom at this point. It will become a physical one, the thousand-year reign of Christ. But that wasn't what he's offering then. But they believe that he was offering that physical kingdom, which they rejected of him. And therefore, he turned to the Gentiles. Again, that's not true. And so they... they they kind of reject all that preceding Matthew chapter 1, that time period as Old Testament scriptures, along with John the Baptist. That's really Old Testament teachings, or the teachings of the kingdom, not of the church. They equate the church as the kingdom of God, but not the millennial reign of Christ. It's confusing, I know. So, anyway, this is what to do with a Pentecost church beginning. Baptists believe in a Jesus began the church. Fifth thing, Baptists believe in pastor-led church, the people being God's clergy or God's heritage. Ephesians 4.11. I'm going to run out of time. Ephesians 4.11 says... And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. And when it talks about the work in the ministry, your pastors and teachers and evangelists are to perfect or mature the saints so we can all do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is not done by the pastors and teachers. The work of the ministry is done by the church. What we're saying here is pastors are part of the church. They're not in a class by themselves. And um, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 5. He says they're not to be lords over God's heritage. And the pastor, so the pastor is a, is a member of the church like everyone else. Just the only difference is he's been chosen by the church to lead them. But he's also accountable to them. And Acts chapter 13 talks a little bit about that. Fundamentalism believes in a hierarchical church leadership. It could be pastor-dominated, elder rule. A lot of the Reformed churches have elders that rule the church, not, and they have it's an own, their own uh, group of elders. There may be three, four, or five. I knew a Baptist church in Coryville, Pennsylvania, that was, had elder rule. Um, it could be a convention or association, the Baptist Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, many of those are, are led by the convention. So in these scenarios, the pastor is not accountable to the church. You know, if he decides, or he may be accountable to the board, the, if it's an elder-run board, what to call board-run church. And, and so he's not, he's not really accountable to church. If he decides he wants to leave, he just resigns and goes. You know, that's the way it's done a lot of times today. And if there's a problem in the church... He'll go talk to others about what he should do and just tell the church what he's going to do. Or pastors look to evangelists, quote-unquote, after all, and I had an evangelist say this to me one time, and I didn't think about it at the time. I didn't understand this at the time. Evangelists are named first before pastors, meaning that evangelists have more authority than pastors. Do you know what an evangelist really is? He's a church planter. 
But see, we have this idea that evangelist is some big wig that runs around. He's an internationally known speaker. He's a big wheel that runs around and thinks he knows more than everybody else does. And he can correct the churches and the pastors. And a lot of pastors like to have these evangelists in to correct their problems that they don't want to address. I had a young assistant pastor asked me one time. He wasn't real young. He's younger than I was. He asked me, where are the evangelists that really teach the people? <laughs> and I kind of, I wanted to chuckle, but I didn't. And I said, well, i give you a few names. But I'm going to tell you right up front. He's a local church. You know what the problem was there? It wasn't that there wasn't anybody that could teach his people. He didn't want anybody stepping on their toes. In other words, all they wanted them to teach doctrine without personal application. That's what a lot of pastors are looking for today. And he wanted, he was looking for somebody to teach his people. So they, so they looked to evangelists, internationally known speakers, colleges and universities, which are, by the way, Catholic or Protestant in origin. Universities is a, is a Catholic thing. Um, and they looked to them for answers on issues pertaining to the churches, many of which have never successfully pastored a church. You know, Matthew 18, 18 says, when you have a problem in the church between somebody, who do you tell it to? You tell it to the church. You tell it to the church. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. You know what I've learned since I've been here? I've learned that when I got a situation, I need some advice for, you know who I go to first? Brother Hoyle, Brother Nathan, Brother Robert. And we have a discussion about it. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about this? See, it should be taken care of in the church. In the church. Now, there have been times I've asked other pastors about different things. But, you know, when, when, we, when I want to uh, talk about an issue that's, that's in the church that I'm, I'm not decided or sure about or studying the scriptures, and I, when I need input, I go to the deacons, spiritual men in the church. I believe that's the way it ought to be done. You know, Revelation says, in Revelation chapter 2, he talks about the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Nico means conqueror. Laetans means what? What do you think it means? Laity. Where we get our word, that's, that's where we get our word for the people. And it really means conquerors of the people. And the Lord's saying to his churches, look, I hate this doctrine of conquerors of the people. In other words, you've got, you're starting to exalt this class of clergy, you call it, over the people. And you're becoming lords over God's heritage, and I hate it. And we know from church history, you start reading church history very early in the, in the first century, there were already pastors that were exalting themselves and trying to exercise authority over churches that they weren't pastors of. That's how Roman Catholicism came about. The church bishops, the, the pastors at Rome began to exalt themselves or their churches began to exalt themselves and, and exercising authority over other churches. And God said, I hate it. I hate it. You know, I appreciate what one person said here some time ago. I like our church where the pastor has a vote like everyone else. He's one of us. That's the way it should be. Sixth thing. Um... Believe in, Baptists have historically believed in miraculous inspiration and preservation of Scripture without error. And, of course, there's many Scripture verses. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away. My words, again, the word words is plural. 
not just talking about the word, what's between the pages or the covers of the Bible, but the number of words on the page. That's important. Um, My words shall not pass away. Of course, the Bible tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. 1 Peter 1.23 says that it's incorruptible. The Word of God is incorruptible. Now, fundamentalists, some fundamentalists believe in inspiration and preservation. Many of them believe in inspiration in the original writings. Now, this this one surprised me. This is a church I'm very familiar with. And I was surprised to read their doctrinal statement online. This is what it says. Quote, We believe the scripture of the Old and New Testaments to be verbally inspired of God and inerrant in their original writing. Unquote. What's wrong with that? There are no originals. There are no originals. So you can believe that, you can say that all you want to, and it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing, because there are no originals. What we have are copies. See, it boils down to, do you believe the word of God when it says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away? Or do you not? See, the, the bottom line is, do you believe God, what, that God said he would preserve his word? He's the overseer of preserving his word and protecting it. And given that responsibility to the churches, they have received them. His church received them. And it's his churches, through down through history, the Albigenses, the Waldentes, that, that had the text of Receptus and translated from the text of Receptus, the received text throughout the centuries, and rejected the Latin Vulgate of the Roman Catholic Church because it's corrupted. And they passed it on. And we still have it. And they kept the Old Testament as well. So, to believe that you believe in inspiration in the original writings means nothing. That's a smokescreen. And then, it goes on, and that they are the supreme, are of supreme, and final authority in faith and life. So, they're the final authority. Can there be other authorities? Well, again, this is what Protestants and fundamentalists have held to was followed creeds of men. There are other authorities. If it's just the final authority, the one we finally appeal to at the end, you know, or is it, you know, R says it's the only authority for faith and practice. You know, though we as Baptists have a glorious history, we don't go back to our Baptist forefathers and say, we're basing our doctrine on what Hubmeyer said in 1525, or John Calvin said in 16-whatever it was. But this is what Protestants and fundamentalists do. It's an appeal to man. And then lastly, they recognize distinct periods of the Lord's administration with different time periods. And these are called dispensations. It's simply a period of time or a period of administration by God. And these are talked about in the book of Ephesians particularly. For example, just look at Ephesians 3 and verse 2. He says, If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God given which is God, which has given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not other ages, in other words, other periods of time or periods of administration, that's what that means, was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs in the same body and partakers of his promise in the Christ by the gospel. So, so that we're in a different time period where Jew and Gentile can be received into the same body, the church, the same church. That's something that was not acceptable before, but now is. So, Baptist people have held to seven dispensations, and, and I'll just give you a couple of them. Innocence, Adam to the fall. I'll give you all of them quickly. Conscience, the fall to the flood. Human government, 
Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel. And we call it human government because God instituted human government. If you kill a man by man, shall your blood be shed. That's, that's basically human government. Uh, and then you have promise, the calling out of Abraham, and the promises made to Abraham until the law. And so you have from the law of Moses till John the Baptist come on the scene. And from John the Baptist till, through now, till the rapture comes, the Lord comes for us, we call this the age of grace or the age of the churches. Now, your Reformed theologians will divide that up differently, particularly the church age. They'll start the church age at Acts chapter 2. Therefore, they reject everything in the Gospels as under the law and not to be received as church doctrine. And of course, you know, after the rapture, seven-year tribulation period and then the thousand-year reign of Christ. So, so you know, you know, to embrace these reformed theological positions, you know, which, which, you know, by association, many Baptists do by association with institutions, colleges. I'm going to be honest with you. Bob Jones, Pensacola are Protestant colleges. They're not Baptists. They like to present themselves as it. In fact, Bob Jones III, years ago, made out a statement, called, and, he, and he said something about Baptist Protestants. So that's Baptist with Protestant theology. And there are many so-called Baptists today that teach that Baptists started during the Reformation period. 1644, I think is the date, somewhere around there, that the Baptists started. They came out of the Reformation. No, it didn't. You know, almost all historians will agree that are honest. Many of them don't like to admit it. But Baptist-like people go all the way back to the first century. To the first century. You say, is this important? Well, it changes the importance of the Lord's church and our responsibility to it. If you're a member of that church out there, does it really matter or is it all that important that I'm in a local church? After all, when we got a problem, guess who we appeal to? Them out there. That's our authority. When we want to train our young men, where do we send them? To them out there. Our authority. You Baptist people never did that until the Reformation and start out, some of them got enamored with the, the uh, scholarship of the Protestants and began to send their, send their young people to Protestant colleges and universities. And, of course, they became indoctrinated with Protestant philosophy. You know, this affects the doctrines of the church. Fundamentalist doctrine cannot be consistent with Pentecost birthday theory. It must lay aside the teachings of John the Baptist and the first pastor of the first church, Jesus Christ himself. Thirdly, it minimizes scriptural authority. It appeals to men. And no matter, no matter how popular or how persuasive a man may be, he pales in comparison to the authority of the word of the Lord. Your greatest authority is not you. Your greatest authority is not another man. Your greatest authority is the word of God coming out of your mouth. That's the greatest authority on earth. It's the authority that the Spirit of God will take and drive it into somebody's heart. The words of a man have really no power without the words of the living God. That's the greatest authority. And see... We've been following, a lot of churches are following man's authorities. The greatest example of this has been the Howell Syndrome. I used to get, because I pastored a church after a hyper Howells guy who was there for 14 years, I got all the publications from the Howells Andersons group for years when I was pastoring there. And I'd either cry or laugh when I got them. One of them said this, article is called the Baptist Contender 
and they were contentious, believe me. You know, some people, a lot of people say I'm contentious, but this was a very contentious group out of Florida, Orange Park, Florida. And the, the article said this, Jack House is the epitome of fundamentalism. When Jack Howes dies, fundamentalism will die with him. You know what I thought? Good. Let it die. It's just a bunch of men following men. See, when we following men, when we follow men, we get what men can do. When we follow Christ, we can get what God can do. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to follow? 